Well, we are into the Christmas season. In fact, this time next week, we'll be gathered together on the Lord's Day, Christmas Day. Every year, it seems, the celebrations begin a little earlier. Every year, the pressure is on to go bigger. Every year, there is the temptation for us to lose sight of what it's all about. Every year, there is the temptation for us to lose our focus. Why do we do what we do? Or asking the same question from a more biblical angle, why did Jesus come? The incarnation is the central idea, the central truth, the central doctrine in view at Christmas, that God came to earth, took on human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son became God incarnate, and he came in a humble manner as an infant in a manger in Bethlehem. The incarnation happened as Jesus took on human flesh, specifically as an infant in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. That image is very easy to celebrate. That image is very easy to gather around. It's a very inoffensive picture. Testimony to its inoffensive nature is found simply by seeing how ready the world is to celebrate the birth of Christ. The world is ready to celebrate Christmas with us because they are not offended by the notion of a baby in a manger. It's not their celebration. It's not theirs to celebrate. The angels proclaimed peace on earth with whom those that God is pleased. We leave that last phrase off. So often the Christmas cards will say, glory to God and peace on earth. Neglecting to include the very last part of the verse, peace to those with whom God is pleased. The truth is, he's not pleased with any of us. Until we put our faith in this infant, this faith in this Man, our faith in him on a cross, that is when we receive the Lord's pleasure and we have the peace that the angels proclaimed. But if you neglect that portion of the narrative and merely focus on the child in a manger, it's a very inoffensive picture. And it is a picture that can cause us to lose our way, to lose track of why the incarnation is so significant. So, theologically profound. Why is the incarnation so glorious event? Why does it shape the way in which we live our lives? Now, at this time of year, ordinarily, the preacher turns to either Matthew 1 and 2 or Luke 1 and 2 because they are the chapters that narrate the birth of Christ. We as a church have been in Matthew all year, and it was January of this year that we worked through the infancy narrative as Matthew records it. 
And so I thought for the next three sermons today, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we'll turn to the epistles and consider how the letters in the New Testament explain to us the theological significance surrounding Christ's first coming. So this morning, here we are in Titus 2. Probably not the text that first comes to mind as you ponder the theological significance of Christmas. But the advent of Christ, his first coming, is very much in view in verse 11 when Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared. That is a reference foremost to the coming of Christ as an infant. It is very much a Christmas verse. And as we consider this text, we will see just how significant his coming really was. The grace of God appeared, why? So as to bring us salvation. Without it, we would not have salvation. We would not be in Christ this morning with our sins cleansed. The grace of God appeared for salvation and for our sanctification. For our training, verse 12, for our pursuit of Christ's likeness. And the grace of God appeared so as to prompt us to persevere. Verse 13, we are waiting, and it is the grace of God that enables us to wait for the second coming of Christ. That's the argument of the text, and that is why Christmas and the birth of Jesus is so important. Why did Jesus come to make known the grace of God that is necessary for salvation and sanctification and perseverance? And if you can grasp these realities, and I pray that God would soften our hearts to enlarge our apprehension of His grace in the coming of Christ, if you can grasp these realities this morning, it will reshape the way you think about Christmas. It will prompt certain responses. Christmas should be a time of great proclamation. We, of all people, should be proclaiming to others the wonder of Christ's birth. Christmas should be a time when we examine ourselves. The grace of God came that we would be sanctified. It should rightly be a time when we consider our own progress in the Lord. And it should be a time of great encouragement when we are prompted to persevere. when we are encouraged to press on. Now, the structure of the text, very simply, is that Paul leads in verse 11, this opening statement organizes every other thought under it. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. And then you'll notice the reasons he gives, bringing 12, training, 13, waiting, and so we'll follow his structure, spending some time on that opening statement in the first half of verse 11, and then considering how it affects our understanding of salvation, of sanctification, and of perseverance. Beginning then with his opening statement, the grace of God has appeared. When Paul writes this, there is a 
presupposition already in place. In his mind and in the mind of Titus and the church there, there is a theological assumption that has already been established that gives an answer to why the grace of God needed to appear. When he says in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, the inference is there was a need for such grace. And the need, stated plainly, is the fact that we all are sinners. We're sinners in need of the grace of God. And the extent of our need is absolute. We need God's grace utterly. We depend upon it entirely. The need is absolute. Or, as theologians speak about the doctrine of our sin, we might say we are utterly depraved. We are totally depraved. That is not to say that we have all committed every sin that it is possible to commit. When you hear people speak about total depravity, it does not mean that we have all committed every sin that it is possible to commit. Nor does the doctrine of total depravity mean that of those sins we have committed, we have all pursued them to the fullest extent. God in His grace has restrained us in our sin. But the doctrine of total depravity does mean that every fiber of our being is sinful. It is not that we have all pursued every sin that we could pursue, but every fiber of our being is sinful. In our thinking, we are sinful. In our desires, we are sinful. In our nature, we are sinful. There is not one part of us that has inherent to it any righteousness that is acceptable before a holy God. Paul even intimates at this reality later in the letter. Look down to chapter 3 where he gives to us a repetition of thought. In verse 4 he says, The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So you see that note of repetition with verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. But in chapter 3, before stating the appearance of the goodness and loving kindness of God, he says in verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That is quite an extensive list. Paul doesn't allow any room for us to plead for our own righteousness. The important point to note about verse 3 of chapter 3 is that they are more dispositions, states of being, than they are actions. As Paul rehearses our sinfulness, he doesn't go foremost to our actions, but to our inclinations, our disposition, our state of being. We sin because we're sinners. Again, you can look back in this same letter and note in verse 15 of chapter 1 how Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. 
But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. That's an interesting truth to ponder. To the pure, all things are pure. To the unpure, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. You see, Paul is not commenting on the worthiness, the uprightness of the object that you choose to set your eyes upon. He is saying, if you are defiled and unbelieving, everything you look at is impure. Because you have a lens, an inherent inbuilt lens that causes you to see sinfully. You perceive the world in a sinful manner. Which is to say you are inherently and totally depraved. The prophet Isaiah perhaps says it most clearly. Even your best deeds are as a polluted garment. Chapter 64 of the prophet Isaiah. The very, very, very best things that you have ever done. That you would be pleased to lay out before a holy God. He looks at and he says polluted garment. It is sinful because it has come from a sinner. Now, this doctrine of total depravity that is inherent and presupposed to the grace of God appearing has suffered much throughout church history. Corporately, there have been times within the history of the church where it has been altogether lost. You probably know that just prior to the Reformation, the church commonly taught that we worked with grace in a kind of partnership so as to earn a right standing before God. The church was not denying that grace was involved, but they were arguing you come alongside and partner with grace so you bring something to the equation and together you may earn a right standing before God which is, in essence, to deny the truth of total depravity. One of the great triumphs of the Reformation was to recover the biblical truth that we are saved by grace alone. We bring nothing to the table. It is all of grace. And if that doctrine has suffered corporately throughout church history, it suffers all the time individually. We are, by inclination, those that seek to fix ourselves, that believe we can remedy the problem. Think of a time when I was speaking with a young boy who had come up to me and asked me a question about death. He was maybe four or five. He came up to me and he wanted to speak to me about death and I was happy to answer his question as best I was able. And then I thought, well... Perhaps now I might ask you a question. So I said to this young boy, where do we go when we die? And he said promptly, heaven. And I said, well, who goes to heaven? And very quickly he said, Christians do. And now I'm proud of him. This kid knows theology. So I pushed my luck and I said, how do you become a Christian? He said, we do chores. (laughs) 
I should have stopped after the second question. But it makes the point we all desire to fix ourselves. We all have an inbuilt desire to work out our own righteousness. This is why every single world religion suggests that the solution to the problem is to work. Every major world religion acknowledges that there is a problem. No one is denying there is a problem created by our wickedness. So what's the solution? Every world religion, save Christianity, says you have to work. That's the solution. Failing to understand that even our besties are a polluted garment. You can't work yourself to a right standing before God. Because we are utterly, inherently wicked. Now that is the presupposition in place, as Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. This is God's solution to our greatest problem. God's solution to our greatest problem is to make manifest His grace. Paul is speaking about the first coming of the Lord Jesus. The grace of God has appeared. That's a reference to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is curious that Paul would phrase this truth of Jesus bringing grace in the way that he does. Paul does not say in verse 11, Jesus came as a vessel of grace. That's true. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say Jesus took on flesh and in him grace was manifest. That is true. Paul brings together the person of Christ and the grace of God, and he makes them one as he says, the grace of God appeared. He personifies grace. The grace of God showed up, meaning Jesus came. And the reason Paul speaks like this is because he wants to teach us something of the nature of the grace. This instructs us in our understanding of God's grace. Grace is God's beneficial inclination towards sinners. God gives good things to sinners that they do not deserve. That's God's grace. He inclines himself towards us. In the sending of his son, grace was manifest. Which is to say, when we receive grace, we receive God. When we receive grace, we receive God. Now that's important because just as we are prone to distort the biblical teaching concerning our sin, we are so also prone to distort the biblical teaching concerning grace. We tend to think we're not as bad as we truly are. And it stands to reason if we think we're not as bad as we truly are, then we don't need as great a solution as we genuinely do need. 
We don't think we're totally, utterly sinful, and so we don't think that we need grace to be as glorious and as great as it truly is. Or, to put it another way, what we tend to do with grace is to package it up and to compartmentalize it as if the grace of God is some kind of dietary supplement. Like a, like a vitamin pill that we can just take, be fixed or helped, and then we go on our way. We make grace very transactional. I'll go to God's Word, I'll get my daily fix of grace, and then I'll be on my way, and I'll live a righteous life because I got my fix this morning. When Paul says the grace of God has appeared, he is showing us that the nature of grace is inherently relational. Grace showed up when Jesus was born. And when you receive this grace, you receive God. You receive Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune Godhead comes to you and you enter into communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that has implications for the rest of salvation history. When Jesus showed up in a manger in Bethlehem to understand the full significance of his incarnation should rightly have ramifications for our understanding of the Christian life. And this is what Paul teaches us for the rest of the passage. Why did the grace of God appear? Why did Jesus come? First, to bring salvation. Second half of verse 11 The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is foremost in the work of Christ in his earthly ministry. Foremost in the work of Christ in his earthly ministry is to proclaim, to offer, to bring salvation. So just consider for a minute how this affects your understanding of Christmas. If your Christmas narrative ends in Bethlehem, it is woefully deficient. If your Christmas narrative ends with a baby in a manger surrounded by shepherds and Mary with a star in the sky as pleasing and as comforting and as inoffensive as that picture is, it is woefully deficient because Jesus Christ came to bring salvation. And so the Christmas narrative properly articulated is one wherein that child grows up and is pinned to a cross. You have to give voice to the full narrative if you are to understand the theological significance of the incarnation. This child does not remain a child forever. He grows up and God commissions him to have a public ministry. One where he proclaims the kingdom of God. 
One where he behaves righteously in the view of sinners. One where he performs miracles to get us into seeing what the kingdom of God is like. And one where he is accused, but he does not retaliate. He does not open his mouth, but he is silent like a sheep that is being led to the slaughter. And that infant child one day hangs on a cross for your salvation. And as they pressed a crown of thorns into his head, and as they drove nails through his hand, as they pushed a spear into his side, his blood flowed, and there you find the forgiveness of your sins. That is the Christmas story. Fathers, mothers, as you tell your children the Christmas story, Take them to the cross. As you are able, with your neighbor, or in the workplace, to articulate why you have joy at this time of year. It's a different joy than the world has. They're ready to celebrate. They don't have the joy we have It's distinct, it's different. As you are able to give voice to why you are full of joy, go to the cross. Take anyone who will listen to the cross of Jesus Christ because therein we find our salvation. And notice the implication that when Christ came, The grace of God appeared. When we receive grace, we receive God himself. Is that our salvation is inherently relational. We are justified by way of a legal transaction. The New Testament speaks about our justification by way of a legal transaction. His robes for mine, we are justified but it also speaks about our relationship. Christmas, salvation is inherently relational. You see how Christmas or the incarnation addresses one of the deepest needs and deepest desires inside every single human heart. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden because of their sin, the greatest tragedy was that they lost fullness of communion with God. The greatest tragedy in the expulsion of humanity from the Garden of Eden is that we lost our experience and enjoyment of fullness of communion with God. He designed us to be there with Him, and now we're outside. And so the rest of human history has been a sorry tale of loneliness, of desperate longing for relationship. Every single person on this planet desperately desires companionship, friendship, fellowship. And that is simply reflective of a deeper desire to have communion with God. Irrespective of how much the sinner 
may suppress that desire in their heart, lingering deep down inside every single one of us is a desire for communion with God. We are relational creatures. And at our absolute core, we want relationship with the one who made us. And the incarnation meets that need. Because the grace of God has appeared, and when we receive grace, we receive God. So we have much reason to proclaim this glorious reality. And Paul says, in fact, in the second half of verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, that is not to be used as an argument for universalism, the notion that every single person will be saved. The Bible does not teach that everyone will be saved. Paul here is not constructing an argument for a universal gospel. Those three words at the end of verse 11 simply teach us about the sufficiency of grace. The grace of God has appeared and it is sufficient for any sinner. It is sufficient to meet and to save and to justify any sinner. So if you are here this morning as a child of God, you understand there is an implication that flows out from that. The grace of God that you have received is sufficient for any sinner. Should you not then be proclaiming this grace to all who would listen? We must proclaim the grace of God. Proclaim the peace that is available with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus. The grace of God has appeared. Why? To bring salvation. Second reason the grace of God has appeared is to train us. That is, the grace of God appeared for our sanctification. In verse 11, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But then he goes on, the thought is not yet complete. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Paul has in view here the normative Christian experience of putting off and of putting on. Much as we have been learning through Paul's letter to the Ephesians in evening service, we see the normative experience for the Christian, this side of heaven, is one of sanctification, or more specifically, progressive sanctification, where we are all continuously renouncing, that is, letting go of, disassociating ourselves with that which does not honor God, at the same time, grasping, laying hold of, New patterns of behavior, that which does honor God, and we refer to that process as sanctification. As one author put it, the Christian life is one of unlearning the language of the world in order to learn the language of heaven. 
begins the moment we put our faith in Christ. The second you put your faith in Christ, your journey of sanctification begins, and it carries on until Christ appears or calls you home. We are all of us unlearning the language of the world and learning the language of heaven. And that unlearning and that learning process will look different for each of us. For some of us, it will be particularly hard in specific areas of our lives. According to, often, the experience that you have had prior to your salvation, the life that you led prior to your salvation, your circumstances having been ordained by God, He knew perfectly when to save you and how to save you, and you bring experiences to your Christianity. And often, according to those experiences, there will be tracks of sinful behavior and thought patterns that are perhaps very well established in your heart. Whereas they may not be so well established in other believers' hearts. So for you, that becomes one area where sanctification is particularly arduous as you try to unlearn those patterns of behavior and thinking. And for another Christian, it will be in another area of life according to their experiences prior to salvation or even according to their circumstances now. But the point is, for all of us, there is to be an unlearning and a learning And it is not easy for anyone. It is not easy for anyone. If you are not experiencing the difficulty of sanctification in your life, I would say most likely you are not being sanctified. If you are not experiencing the arduous nature of unlearning and of learning, then you are either stagnant as a child of God or you're not being saved. Sanctification is not happening in you. For all of us, we are to be sanctified and it is not easy. And this is why Paul uses the verb at the beginning of verse 12, training. Training, the same word used elsewhere to speak of the discipline the child necessarily receives in order to mature. Our sanctification is a kind of discipline. It is a continual training. Now, if our sanctification is arduous, intense, not easy, how are we to pursue it successfully? And the answer is by the grace of God. Don't disconnect the thoughts. See Paul's argument. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, referring to the coming of Christ. He then gives his first reason for it appearing to bring salvation. But don't stop the argument there because Paul doesn't. He then gives a second reason for that grace to appear, training. The grace of God has appeared. Why? So as to sanctify the saints. 
God's people are to be sanctified according to his grace. Or, more specifically, according to a persistent focus upon Christ. This is where so many Christians misunderstand what the Christian life is to look like. We talk about salvation as being monogistic. One actor. Mono, it's God and God alone. We talk about sanctification as being synergistic. Two actors, God and us. We have a responsibility. But so many Christians render in their hearts and in their behavior sanctification as if it were monogistic with the sole actor being them. They don't rely on God's grace to pursue Christ's likeness. They happily receive Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for their salvation, and then they put their head down as if somehow pursuing a monogistic sanctification more honors the Lord. They put their head down and they march as best they're able in their strength towards the commands of Scripture. And understand, if your sanctification is not grounded in a persistent receiving of God's grace, you will not find the commands of Scripture to be light. You will find them to be burdensome. In fact, if your sanctification is being pursued apart from a persistent reception of God's grace, namely Christ your sanctification will be one wherein you resent that which God asks of you. Will not be joy-filled. If you pursue your sanctification in this way, the world will start to look attractive to you. You'll long for the things that you can't have. You'll want to be elsewhere. Your sanctification is to be fueled by grace. One that centers on the person of Christ. It is to be relational. When you receive grace, you receive God. Your sanctification is to be grace-fueled. That is to be relational. It is to be a relational endeavor. Which means your sanctification is to be Grounded in this book as a means of apprehending Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You open this book and you allow the words of God to direct your heart towards a glorious meditation upon His Son. You fixate upon the glory of Christ and His promises and it's on that basis that you obey. You read the Old Testament and you see Christ foreshadowed. You read the Gospels and you see Christ incarnate. You read the Epistles and you see Christ explained and you allow the truths of Scripture to direct your heart and on the basis of your gratitude and acknowledgement of who He is and what He has done, then you obey. In particular, you grasp hold of and re you renew in your own mind the truth that Christ has victory over sin 
and death. This is so important. How do you pursue Christ-centered, grace-fueled sanctification? Renew your heart to the truth that Christ has declared victory over sin and death. You are in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're in union with Him. You are in union with the One who has declared victory over sin. The implication for your life as a Christian is that you are no longer enslaved to sin. This is a central promise to enable you to pursue Christ-centered sanctification. Or I should just say to pursue sanctification. There is no other kind of sanctification but that which is Christ-centered. So you lay hold of Christ in your heart. And in particular, you lay hold of the truth that this man, whom you worship, who died on a cross for your sin, has declared victory over sin. Therefore, you are no longer enslaved. And with that truth abounding in your heart, now run towards obedience. Now unlearn the language of the world. And learn the language of heaven. This is why Paul wrote this letter. This is Paul's primary concern in this letter. We're in Titus. And Titus was not written primarily to explain the meaning of Christmas. You sat there thinking, what are we doing the Sunday before Christmas in Titus? I wanted to read about the wise men and the star and the baby. That was January. (laughs) This is a different month. Here we are in Titus. I understand it's not written to explain Christmas, at least not first and foremost, but it does explain Christmas. The broader context of the letter is that Paul is writing to Titus in order that the church would be put in order. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Verse 5, there's the purpose statement. What does that mean? It means that Titus teaches sound doctrine, and that the people respond. Titus 2, the older men respond, and the young men respond, and the older women respond, and the younger women respond. They are all responders to God's word. Which is to say, his concern is that they would pursue Christ-likeness in accordance with the truth. And in that context, Paul says, the grace of God appeared. This is the central, foundational premise upon which you are able to respond. It is to acknowledge the grace of God in the coming of Jesus Christ. And as you do so, as you fix your heart on Him and rehearse that He has conquered death and conquered sin, then you respond to the Word of God joyfully and you pursue sanctification. So you can see, Christmas can and should be a time of self-reflection for Christians. What are the 
implications from this birth, this child in a manger? How does that inform my life? One implication is that you reflect this time of year. How am I doing with my obedience to God's word? Where is there language of the world that I need to unlearn? Where is there ungodliness that I need to renounce? Where are there worldly passions that I need to renounce? And how may I better run towards a self-controlled, upright, godly life in the present age? Or more fundamentally, you can reflect simply on your relationship with Christ. Do I love him? Has my love grown cold for Jesus? Do I spend time with him in his word and in prayer? And is my obedience issuing from my delight in him? Finally, why did Jesus come to make the grace of God known for salvation, for sanctification, and for our perseverance. Verse 13, Paul says, as he's written that we are to live upright lives in this present age, he then says in verse 13, waiting. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a rich text that takes us all the way from the incarnation to the second coming. It is a rich text that takes us from our spiritual birth to our beholding Christ when we stand before him. And Paul shows us that the way in, we, the way in which we get from one to the other, the way in which we move from our spiritual birth to our homegoing, our standing before Christ in glory, is by waiting. We wait. That's what Christians do. We wait for Christ. Now, it is not a passive waiting. Look at verse 14, as he expounds on who Christ is, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. There's the sanctifying journey that we're all on. He describes us in verse 14 as a possession who are zealous for good works. So our waiting is not inactive, it is not passive, it is vigorous, it is very much active. And this is what we refer to as the doctrine of our perseverance. The way in which we move from the point of our birth in Christ to the day when we stand before Him in glory is by persevering. Specifically by running towards God, good works that God ordained beforehand that we would do. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, the doctrine of perseverance has fallen on hard times recently. Perhaps 
you remember, it wasn't that long ago when people would say and rehearse regularly, once saved, always saved. And I don't mind that sentence in so much as it affirms the truth of our eternal security in Christ. He is the good shepherd. He holds us in his hand. Not one hair can fall from my head without the will of the Father. That is all true. But the problem with saying once saved, always saved, is that it diminishes the biblical responsibility that we have to persevere. The way in which our eternal security is made manifest in this earthly life is through our perseverance. It is right and proper to understand we have a responsibility as it relates to our final standing in glory. And that does nothing to injure or threaten the truths that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Christians are called to persevere. How do we persevere? By the grace of God. Again, this is the argument of the text. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Jesus showed up. When you receive grace, you receive God. Why did Jesus come? Because that grace was necessary for salvation and for sanctification, and for our perseverance. Our waiting, our waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ only happens in so much as we are fixed upon the person of Christ. That is how you persevere. Think about one of my heroes of the faith. Charles Simeon, who labored as a pastor in Cambridge for 54 years at Holy Trinity Church in the center of that city. That was the church that I was saved in, where I was baptized. And many hundreds of years prior, Charles Simeon was there preaching week after week for 54 years. Now, if you know anything of his story, you'll know it was not an easy ministry. When he first showed up, the church was not used to hearing biblical preaching. And he sought to exposit the text and to preach the gospel, the reality of man's sin and Christ as a savior. And people didn't like what they heard. In those days, the pews had doors at the end that you would shut during the week and lock and the church wardens, in protest to Simeon's ministry, refused to unlock the pews on a Sunday so nobody could come in and sit down. And so Simeon would line the aisles of that church with chairs. And the church wardens would get the chairs and throw them out into the street. And the university scheduled their New Testament Greek lectures intentionally on a Sunday night so as to stop the theology students attending Simeon's evening service. And this went on for many, many years. Now, there was a turning point in his ministry when people began to accept his teaching. And on the day of his funeral, the whole city of Cambridge lined the streets to honor him. 
as the coffin was carried through the streets. Towards the end of Simeon's life, somebody said to him, how have you persevered all these years? And Simeon famously said, two objects I have ever striven to hold before me. One is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is by looking to Jesus that we persevere. And so, be encouraged. Be encouraged this time of year as we think upon the incarnation of Christ. You have a sufficient Savior. He is sufficient to save, to sanctify, and to cause you to persevere. Would you pray with me now to close? Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that the grace of God has appeared. We rejoice that Jesus came to earth and took on flesh. We rejoice that this grace is sufficient to save. Father, may we proclaim the gospel. We thank you for our salvation in Christ this morning. Lead us to proclaim the Christmas story of Christ's death on a cross. Thank you that the grace of God is sufficient for our sanctification. Thank you that you don't ask us to pursue Christ's likeness in our own strength. But by delighting in the Son, we can unlearn the language of the world and learn the language of heaven. May we reflect accurately at this time of year on our relationship with him. Thank you that the grace of God is the bedrock of our perseverance. Father, may we look to him to endure the trials of life, to press on as we wait the second coming of your Son, that glorious day when Christ will be revealed. We commit ourselves to you in his name. Amen.